turn with me over to John chapter 21. Read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14 this morning. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and at night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciple came in the little boat, the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got on the land... They saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your awesome and holy word and ask your blessings on our time this morning. Lord, I I pray that for all of us who have had difficult nights, perhaps even what the Puritans used to refer to as the the long or dark night of the soul, that we would see the joy that comes in knowing you and in trusting in your provision. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When I think of beautiful sights, my mind is led to pictures of mountain ranges with icy peaks of deep canyons carved from reddish-brown rock, of breathtaking, cascading waterfalls, of tropical rainforests with gorgeous flora and fauna, of brilliantly blue ocean waves turning to foam as they smash against rocky shorelines. Now, not being much of a world traveler, much of those pictures are in my mind only because people have taken pictures, (laughs) or they have painted them, or they've captured them in videos. But one thing I have been able to see with my own eyes that I have truly enjoyed over many years is that of the sight of a beautiful sunset. Even here in Houston at times we get a glimpse of one. But just a 
a couple of few weeks ago now, while Leah and I were on our anniversary cruise, we were given the gift of a particularly beautiful sunset on our very last night on board the ship. Now, as all things like this, it's hard to describe just what we felt as we stood there on the deck looking out at this site. The wind was blowing in our faces. We were looking over the railing as we saw the fiery sun slowly descending into the ocean, brilliant hues of light scattering through the clouds. There were a couple of older ladies who were standing near to us, and they were so very sweet. They became professional photographers for us. They took our cameras and took several shots and had us, like, rearrange ourselves and took us with, like, silhouetted against it, and then they had flash on us, and they went on and on and on about it. And it was really, really sweet of them, and we we were just really touched that they went to such lengths to want to try to capture this moment for us. And so as we come home and then we're looking through the pictures on my computer, um, even with all their wonderful efforts, it doesn't come close to capturing the moment. I know that you've probably had experiences similar to this. Even modern technology has a hard time communicating the beauty and grandeur of things like that. I realize, however, that I've seen far more sunsets in my life than I have seen sunrises. I know sunrises can be brilliant as well, but I just enjoy sleep too much on days that I have off. Um, But there are few things more welcome to someone who has had a tough night than the dawn of a new day. I can bet sailors would know this particularly well. For the only thing that's worse than a long, hard night would be a long, hard night out at sea, right? We know the disciples experienced some tough nights out at sea. Many of them were fishermen by trade. And this morning, we're going to look at one particular night in their lives, and then the following morning. John alone recounts the events that we see here in John 21. And here we have another appearance of Jesus to his disciples, this time by the Sea of Galilee, a place where Jesus had spent quite a bit of time with his disciples during his earthly ministry. Many have referred to John chapter 21 as an epilogue. The reason for this is the way that John chapter 20 ends. Listen, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It has a really great concluding Sound and flavor to that. It sounds like the end of a sermon, right? I could say many more things about this, but this I have said that you might believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. It has a real concluding feel to it. And all of a sudden, there's more. (laughs) There's more. That's the reason why many have said John 21 is an epilogue. And I think this is not out of style for John because many have said that the first 18 verses of John are a prologue. A prologue. We get a glimpse into eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he comes to what seems like the conclusion of his gospel in John 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. But meanwhile then, here is a further event that he recounts for us. And oh, how glad we are that he did. We're given details regarding the appearance of Jesus in Galilee... Now, the disciples had been instructed to go to Galilee, and some may have doubted whether or not Jesus ever truly met the disciples there were it not for this account, which, by the way, is an unfair position to hold regarding the Scriptures, but many people do this. If the Scriptures don't specifically speak to a fulfillment, they go, well, where's the fulfillment? 
Well, does the Bible have to give every specific fulfillment to us? Edersheim remarks the following. Should we not learn from this that what appears to be strange omissions at times, which, when held next to the other gospel narratives, seem to involve discrepancies, may be capable of the most satisfactory explanation if we only knew all the circumstances? In other words, whenever the Bible is silent about something, it's wrong to then merely assume that nothing happened at all. I like the way that John even ends uh, his gospel, literally ends it in the end of John 21, where he says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself would contain the books that were written. We'll see later on together that there seems to be some impetus as to why John continued his gospel. In particular, we'll see that he is concerned that people not misunderstand what Jesus said to Peter on the events of this day. Because Peter had asked, well, what's going to happen with this one? And to John, and Jesus says, well, if he remains until I come, what's that to you? What is it to you what I do with him? And John says that some people have circulated a rumor believing that I won't die. And he says, all that Jesus said is, if he should not die, what is that to you? So he's concerned about that. But what's interesting is that if that's part of the impetus for sharing the rest of this, the rest of the events of that day are so special. And so it's a really fascinating providence that if that is part of the reason why this was included, that the material leading up to that is just such a treasure to us. Both the passage we're looking at this morning and then next time when we talk about Peter's reinstatement, which we're all also probably quite familiar with. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? That also happens in this same context. Well, in a sermon entitled The Dawn of a New Day, we'll see a frustrating night turned into a marvelous day. We're going to look, first of all, at an empty night, and then second of all, at a glorious morning. An empty night followed by a glorious morning. Let's first of all consider an empty night. And we see the disciples here returning to the familiar. Now, they had been told to return to Galilee, and so they have. Jesus had prophesied in Mark 14, 28, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Upon seeing the empty tomb, the two Marys were told by an angel in Matthew 28, verse 7, go quickly, tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And then on the way, Jesus meets these women, and he tells them in Matthew 28, verse 10, Don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. This may have been done to ensure that the disciples didn't misunderstand the nature and purpose of Jesus' resurrection. He didn't want them to just sit around in Jerusalem awaiting some sort of overthrow of the Roman government or changeover of the Jewish leadership. In fact, Jesus' plan was much grander than that. His plan was to literally turn the world upside down, to proclaim good news of the forgiveness of sins, to reconcile sinful men to holy God. Now, we don't know how many days had passed between Jesus' last appearance to the disciples. We know that he appeared to all of them except for Thomas. And then about a week later, he appears to all of them with Thomas. And now all of a sudden, we pick up on the account, and they're in Galilee. We don't know how much time has passed in between that last visit and the one that we're about to see. We also don't know the impetus for Peter's decision to go fish. Some have seen in Peter's desire to go fish 
um, some lack of patience in Peter in his waiting on the Lord. Some have accused Peter of neglecting his true calling here. Originally, remember when Peter was originally called, and we had this read this morning, we're going to look at it a couple of times because it's really an important passage to consider in light of this. When Peter was originally called, and Jesus gives a miraculous catch of fish, remember when they get to shore, they leave the nets. They leave all the stuff behind, and they go and follow Jesus. So a lot of people have criticized Peter, and the disciples for that matter, for what they're doing here. Haven't you left fishing? Haven't you left your nets and the boats and all of that? Are they now returning back to life as normal? Have they forgotten all about Jesus? Do they not care about the gospel? These kinds of questions have been posed by several commentators and preachers alike. I just would like to say this, that the text does not explicitly condemn Peter for fishing. It doesn't. We must remember that it's quite possible that this was merely a means to provide some food for himself and his companions, or to make a little bit of income, or to engage in something familiar and profitable while waiting further instructions from the Lord. The disciples were not men of great wealth, and they were not above returning to fishing to meet daily needs. In any case, the text does not present Peter's action, I believe, in a negative light, nor does Jesus chasten Peter or the disciples for having fished that evening. Matter of fact, as we can see, he helps them in a tremendous way in their attempt to do some fishing. Peter does not go out alone. He's accompanied by six others. We're told Thomas, uh, called Didymus, another word for the twin, um, the one who had doubted is there. Uh, Nathaniel of Cana. By the way, this is the first time we're told that Nathaniel was from Cana. Cana is interesting because this was the first place where Jesus performed his first sign, turning what? Water to wine. Very good, at the wedding feast. Um, the sons of Zebedee are mentioned, and who are they? James and John. Excellent, James and John. Again, John is following in his normal pattern of never mentioning his own name. And you'll see it again here in this text, because again, he won't refer to himself, but instead refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Two other disciples are then also mentioned, but their names are not given. It says two others were there as well. MacArthur argues for Andrew and for Philip. The reason why he argues for them is because these two are often present when the others in this group are. Andrew was Peter's brother, which makes him a likely choice. And Philip was the one who brought Nathaniel to Jesus in the first place. So all of these guys are friends, and it would seem quite likely that these two are there. We're not told specifically, but that's as good a guess as any. We're told that these men toiled through the entire night. It's sensible that they would go out on this fishing expedition in the evening. It was typical practice. So that, that way, by the morning time, as they brought in the haul of fish, they would have fresh fish to eat and also to sell in the market. But they find nothing As the first glimpses of the sunrise come to these men, sadly they have nothing to show for all of the labors of the previous night. They had been completely unsuccessful. And it is here that I find a blessed camaraderie with these men. I have been on my fair share of fishing expeditions and have almost always come home empty-handed. I really like the idea of fishing, the atmosphere of fishing. I just don't get so much the fish of fishing. One of the biggest problems that I have with fishing is just running into a lack of information. I mean, where to fish, when to fish, how to fish, what bait to use, uh, how quickly to reel the bait in, what lure to use. There are so many variables. 
unless I'm with some experienced fisherman, I'm guaranteed to not come home with any fish. I even went on a canoeing and fishing trip on an eighth, as an eighth grade graduate, and I caught Zippo over a five-day fishing and canoeing trip. You have to be quite accomplished at not catching fish to accomplish that feat. Well, that's all you've been doing, and you can't even catch one fish. We must remember, though, that this group were not a bunch of Jess fishermen, right? These were experienced fishermen. The, they, they were fishing in their old fishing hole. This is where they fished. This is what they did. They were doing it at the proper time. They knew their craft. They knew their skills. And yet they worked through the entire evening and they come up empty-handed. I'm sure they're shocked. I'm sure they're tired. I'm sure they're worn out. I'm sure they're frustrated. They're angry. And then to add insult to injury, the only thing worse than you know, going through a fishing expedition and catching no fish is having someone ask you if you caught anything, right? And then all of a sudden, this stranger appears on the beach, and he says, Boys, haven't caught anything, eh? I mean, really, the Greek grammar there assumes a negative reply. Whenever a question is asked in Greek, you can either assume a positive or assume a negative, and so we would kind of say it like that. Haven't caught anything, huh? That's kind of what Jesus is saying to these men. The address is interesting in itself. Some translations have translated this, children haven't caught anything. I kind of like the word lads or boys or haven't caught anything. Surprisingly, there's no attempt to cover up their failure. No, they reply. I guess there is nowhere to hide. They have nothing to show for all of their work. But all of this just serves to make what comes next all the sweeter. You know, this is how it is with all of my favorite stories. The, the dawn is enjoyed all the more when following the bleakest night. The light is all the more appreciated by one who has felt the disappointment and failure of a long night. As Psalm 30 verse 5 says, that weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes with the morning. So this night gives way to point number two, a glorious morning. A glorious morning. And we see disappointment eclipsed by joy. We see disappointment eclipsed by joy. Jesus gives a command and a promise. Now, the men don't recognize that it's Jesus who's talking with them. Is it possible that maybe supernaturally the the Lord was just covering over their eyes so they couldn't recognize him? Possible? Or... Could it be that just as the light was kind of starting to come up on the horizon, there still wasn't enough light to really make out who was on the beach? Or could it be that maybe some early morning fog was present? We don't know. But for whatever reason, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Yet Jesus tells the disciples to cast the net to the other side of the boat and promises that should they do so, they will find fish. He says, cast your net to the other side and you will find. There's a command, cast. There's a promise, you will find. Cast it to the other side, and you will find. Now, this is an unusual command. The other side of the boat. What difference will that make? Yet the Lord is often pleased to work through ordinary means to bring about supernatural results. It makes me think of the story of Naaman. Remember Naaman? All plagued with leprosy, and he comes looking for a solution from the prophet of God, he's told to go down to the Jordan and wash seven times. And his initial reaction to that is, 
That's so common. It's nothing spectacular. Just forget it. Remember then he's counseled about this. He's like, well, if he had told you to do something spectacular, would you have done it? Yes, I would have. Like, well, why won't you do this? <laughs> why won't you do this? If he's saying that's what you're supposed to do. So he does go down and wash, and he comes up healed and clean. So often the Lord works through what seems to us to be unusual means to bring about supernatural results. Isn't that a really great definition of the gospel, of evangelism? Think about it. How many of you would choose us to be the purveyors of God's truth? <laughs> you know, us weak, frail, broken, cracked pots, you know? Why us? God delights to shine his glory through weak vessels and show his strength and show his power. He's pleased to use the foolishness of preaching. He's pleased to use the good news proclaimed through weak and frail vessels to bring about glorious results. And so it is on this occasion. Jesus' command and promise are met by the men's obedience and fulfillment. It's fascinating that these men comply, and seemingly without any objections. On the previous occasion, when they were called originally, there was some objections. Peter says to the Lord, we've been fishing all night. (laughs) Go out to the deep and let down the nets. We've been fishing all night. Here, a stranger gives a strange instruction, and these seasoned fishermen follow the order. I mean, think about it. Surely they are thinking in their minds, what difference does it make if the net is right here or right here? I mean, we're not talking about a lure that we're just trying to sit down into a like, little you know, crag in a rock or a, near a knot in a tree that's underneath the water. I mean, this is a net, right? It's a big net. What's the difference if it's laid down here or here? On the other hand, it's not unusual to get all kinds of tips from people on how to fish, right? Everybody loves to give advice about how you ought to fish better. I take all the advice and I still am not able to accomplish it. But I find it interesting the disciples here, these experienced fishermen, are so quick to comply. Perhaps they've come to the end of themselves. Perhaps they're willing to try anything. I think it's part of the reason why Jesus starts by asking them the question, they haven't caught anything. They're admitting that they're bankrupt. No, we've got nothing. So he says, put the net to the other side and you'll find fish. And wonder of wonders, as soon as they obey, the net fills to the brim. They go from catching nothing to gathering a record-making catch. They can't even pull the net into the boats, we're told. On the previous occasion, remember, they were able to get the fish into the boats, but they had to get another boat over, and the two boats were about to sink from the weight of it, and the, the nets were ripping apart. Here we're told they can't even get the net. They can't get the net into the boat. They can't get the fish into the boat. They have to drag the whole thing to shore and beach the fish in that manner. This leads to recognition and elation. John tells Peter, what a moment this might have been. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. We're not surprised that it's John who first recognizes that it's Jesus. Remember, it was John who, upon seeing the grave clothes in the empty tomb, concluded that Jesus had risen from the dead. John chapter 20, verse 8. 
And is it possible that John, the moment that the net filled with fish, with such an incredible number of fish, that John in his mind remembered his initial calling? He had seen Jesus do something like this before. Luke 5, verse 4. Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners of the other boat. They came to help them. They, they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. John recognizes the fingerprints of his master all over this event. This is Jesus' work. We can tell the handiwork of our loved ones, can't we? I spent enough time with my wife over the years to know that where she goes, she leaves a, a path of cleanliness behind her. I'll know if my wife has been somewhere because of the way in which things are left. You'll also know where I have been by the trail that I leave behind me as well. Praise the Lord that my wife is constantly picking up after me. Um, I've enjoyed enough meals and moments of hospitality with my mom to know when she is involved in some sort of celebration. I don't even have to know. Nobody has to tell me. But just I know her style and I know Carol Larson was involved in that one. I've uh, I've received plenty of notes from my daughter to know even if she doesn't sign the note that this is from Ashlyn. This is her handwriting. This has her written all over it. I played enough music with Christian and Randy over the years to know how they're going to play a song even sometimes before we start into it. If I see a note signed with heavenly hugs, I know that Lelina was involved in that, right? We, if you've seen crocheted things around here, you know it's Miss Eva. We, we see the handiwork. You see the fingerprints. We know when someone is at work around us. Those whom we love, we really notice these things. John instantly surmises this above and beyond result can be the work of none other than the Lord. It is the Lord, John says. It is Jesus. That's the one who's on the beach. I love the way A.W. Pink says it. What a lesson is here again for the Lord's servants. When he grants success to our labors... When the gospel net is in our hands and it gathers fishes, let us not forget to own, it is the Lord. To how much more should we use this principle and apply it everywhere? As we admire the beauties of nature, as we observe the orderliness of her laws, as we receive countless mercies and blessings every day, let us say, it is the Lord. So too, when our plans go awry, when disappointment and affliction and persecution comes our way, let us still own, it is the Lord the Lord. It's not blind chance that rules our lives, but the one who died for us on the cross. And hope that in this event we just get a glimpse of what is to come. What a day of rejoicing it will be one day when we all get to heaven. When we see Jesus and we enter into the place that he has prepared for us, we will see his handiwork. We will know this is the work of our Lord. The momentary light affliction that we experience here is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. John recognizes it's Jesus. This is Jesus' work. Meanwhile, Peter grabs his coat. He girds himself and he jumps into the water. We're not so surprised that John's the first one to recognize Jesus. We're also not that surprised that Peter's the first one to act, right? His action here is wonderful to see. 
When originally called by Jesus and seeing Jesus provide a miraculous catch, Peter's initial reaction, though, on that occasion was a little bit different. When those fishes can't, when the boats can't hold the fish, when the nets are breaking, and Jesus and Peter recognizes that this one in the boat with him is someone much greater than himself. On that earlier occasion, listen to how Peter initially reacted to Jesus after getting a huge catch of fish back in Luke 5. Go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. We're told for amazement it seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish that had been taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. On that occasion, Peter sees his own sinfulness. He recognizes Jesus' greatness, perhaps even here, his holiness. He says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. You are great and holy, and I am sinful. And now here in recent past days, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And he had done this after swearing that he would never do that to Jesus, remember? Jesus had prophesied that he would, Peter denied that he would, and then he did. But here, instead of cowering away, instead of shouting out from the boat, Jesus, depart from me, instead of fleeing away, Peter runs, or should I say, swims to Jesus. What's the difference? Has Jesus' holiness changed at all? Absolutely not. Has Peter's sinfulness changed at all? Uh, Absolutely not. He's still a sinner. Jesus is still holy. But Peter had come to experience the grace and mercy of God through Jesus. This is the power of grace operative in the heart. We recognize that we're sinners. We know that we're worthy of wrath. But because God is not only holy and righteous, but also merciful and gracious, we're drawn to him by cords of love. Instead of running from him, we run to him. Pleading that he would show us mercy and forgiveness, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious and compassionate and delights to give and grant forgiveness and cleansing. I love the elation that is so evident here with Peter. He's not concerned with getting wet. He must get to Jesus. He reveres Jesus and therefore he grabs his coat first for he's at least partially naked, if not completely. There's debate about that. But so he grabs his cloak, he throws it over himself, and he throws himself into the water. Decorum must give way to the joy of coming to Jesus. He cannot wait for the boat to row ashore. He must go now. A couple of weeks ago, our AC went out at our house, and so my mom graciously opened her house to my family. So we had a cool place to rest. And when I arrived at her house on one particular day with my kids with me, they ran ahead of me into Nana's house. And as they entered, they saw my mom crying, tears streaming down her cheeks. My kids came back outside and were concerned that something was wrong with Nana. And as I walked in, it took me just a couple of seconds to recognize that the tears were not those of sorrow, but of unfettered joy. She was on the phone with a customer she had been calling on for a long time in hopes of winning 
a bid for a multi-million dollar woodworking project for her company. And the gentleman had just told her that her company had won the bid and had been awarded the job. And my mom couldn't contain her joy. She even told the man somewhere in the midst of that conversation, so much for professionalism. Yet, truth be told, my mom wasn't the only one that had talked with this gentleman, but she was the one he wanted to call first because he knew how much it meant to her. He, could, he knew her excitement would be present. He knew she would have enthusiasm. enthusiasm. He could sense her drive. Think about it. It's the very thing that we so enjoy and laugh about with children. They express their feelings and emotions freely. And yes, sometimes it gets them in trouble and we have to redirect them. Yes, 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 we know about all of that too. But it is also what just makes children such a joy, right? It's not couched under all these layers of decorum. It just comes out of them. They start literally, you know, doing cartwheels for joy and, you know, jumping up and down. And, you know, this is just exciting and it's fun when every once in a while an adult forgets decorum because joy has just swept them up. We don't get to see it nearly as much as we ought. John perceives that it's Jesus first, but Peter's the one who can't contain his excitement. He's first to come to Jesus, even leaving the rest of the disciples with all those fish. You know, they're all struggling in, and Peter's like, "Forget it!" You know, he's just swimming on the shore. Such a, it's it's just so many layers of 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 things going on there. J.C. Ryle uh, comments on the difference in response between Peter and John, and and I think we would be wrong to to use this as an opportunity to somehow criticize either Peter or John or any of the other disciples. I don't think that's the purpose of the text here. And I like the way that Ryle talks about it. The Church of Christ needs servants of all kinds. He needs instruments of every sort. He needs pen knives as well as swords. The Lord needs, instrument, uh, needs axes as, long, as well as hammers. He needs chisels as well as saws. He needs... Martha's as well as Mary's. He needs Peter's as well as John's. Then we see this emptiness of that light overwhelmed by abundance. We see emptiness overwhelmed by abundance. The disciples had nothing to show for their arduous night, but now in a moment everything was changed. They do some counting. And they do some reflection. The disciples come ashore. They find Jesus is already there. He already has a a lit charcoal fire. He's cooking fish. He has bread. And he tells them to now bring up with them some of the fish they now have caught. Uh, I think there's a specific emphasis there on now. In other words, reminding them that I just provided those fish for you. Uh, Now that you've caught some fish, bring those on up as well. I like the way that Wright talks about this. Jesus welcomes Peter's catch. He asks him to bring some of it, but he doesn't need it. Of course, we are to work hard. Of course, we're to be organized. Of course, there's no excuse for laziness or sloppiness or half-heartedness in the kingdom of God. If it's God's work we're doing, we must do it with all of our might. But let's not have any of this nonsense about it being all up to us, about poor Jesus being unable to lift a finger unless we lift it for him. In fact, we are much more likely to work effectively once we get rid of that paranoia-inducing notion. Jesus remains sovereign. 
thank God for that. What a good reminder for the disciples and for us. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus right here on this occasion is going to give them a very tangible reminder of when they have nothing in their hands, Jesus will provide for them. We're told that Peter drags the net of fish up on the beach, uh, which has caused some speculation. How strong was Peter? I mean, they couldn't get these nets into the boat, but Peter by himself is lugging this up. I mean, maybe he was Adam Larson, my brother, and he's able to do that sort of thing. But, but you know, otherwise, maybe it's just a, a, a notion here that Peter is, you know, directing the group of guys, and they're now all dragging these fish up on the shore. And then there's an accounting of the exact number of fish, and we're told that they were big fish, and there was 153 of them. Carson notes, it's, it's unsur- it's, it, it is unsurprising that Someone counted them. Some have made a big deal. Why did they count the specific number? It's not surprising that they would count them. Either as part of dividing them up amongst the fishermen in preparation for sale, or because one of the men was so dumbfounded by the size of the catch that he said something like, Can you believe it? I wonder how many there are. And as they start to count the fish, they are also awed by another simultaneous miracle. And that is, that the net has not broke. The net is still intact. We've received just a similar experience as a church this year. We had tremendous news to share with every, everyone on, at our annual budget meeting this past Thursday night. What was looking like over $200,000 of potential loss this year, what we might call a dark night. God has abundantly provided for our need due to increased tithing and giving and grant awards such that we're looking to close the year at about exactly where we need to be breaking even on the year. Praise be to the Lord, right? This is a moment where we ought to say, like John does, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. This is his handiwork. He's the one that does these things. And while we work diligently to be frugal and wise and we attempt to be generous, we're reminded that it is our Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he is the one who provides for our our daily needs. Jesus then, after they've counted the fish and they've seen the net, he then invites them and exercises hospitality. He doesn't send them away. He invites them to himself. He invites them to breakfast. Now, I don't know how many of you in this room like love breakfast. Uh, it's one of those meals that I have a tendency to skip um, for time reasons. But I do enjoy a good breakfast when I get to have them especially when it's with good friends and family. But I've been told that there's nothing quite like freshly caught and cooked fish. I'm not much of a fish person myself, I must admit. But I've heard there is nothing like that. I think even Michael was saying that to me just the other day. Perhaps there was some hesitation on these disciples. We even were told that no one asked him who he was, for they all knew that it was Jesus. They're sitting there just, I think, in awe and in shock. They went from zero success through the whole night on their own, and now in a moment they've caught more fish than they could have even get into the boat. They had to drag it to shore. And now there they are in the presence of the resurrected Lord. Jesus is proving to these men yet again that his death did not terminate his care and provision for them nor his fellowship with them. As a matter of fact, it is what is fueling all of those things, his death and resurrection. 
So Jesus then distributed the fish and bread and they ate together. Peter will even specifically mention this fact to Cornelius in Acts 10, where he says, speaking about the gospel, he says, God raised Jesus up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. John concludes this by saying that this was the third appearance that Jesus made to the disciples. If we count all of the other recorded appearances of Jesus, those which weren't to the disciples, the ones to Mary, to the women, to Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, to Simon by himself, this is like the seventh appearance that Jesus has made. And while we have pointed out several points of significance in the details of these events, I want to close by just reminding all of us to not forget what's at the heart of all of this, the raw historical fact that this scene provides further evidence and support for. And what fact is that? That Jesus rose from the dead. And he rose with power. He is the Lord of everything, which certainly includes the sea and the fish that are there. All of the historical details here just provide further proof of the genuineness of the historicity of these events. Seven disciples all at once see Jesus and they experience a fantastic miracle. The fact that the miracle is added ensures that the story would be remembered and repeated. For who doesn't love telling fishing stories, right? When they go, well, we love to tell those stories, right? This would be a catch to remember for sure. In fact, even to this day, we'll still see people sometimes put fishes on the back of their cars. And inside of that fish, you'll see the Greek letter spelled out ichthus. Ichthus, the word for fish. Ichthus being used even as an acronym. Each letter of that standing for the first one, the, the Yoda being Iesus for Jesus. The second one, the Chi there for Christos, for Christ. The next one, Theos. Standing for Theos is God. The next one, the Upsilon is huios, which means son. Put that usually together, God's son. And the last one, the S, what we call our S, the sigma, soter, meaning savior. You put all of that together, Jesus Christ, God's son, savior. That, that, the symbol of the fish still residing here to this very day. The details of the story just lend to its credibility. Whenever someone tells a lie, usually the only details that are included are those that are important to the lie. One of the things that's unique about truthful retelling of events is that they include these unnecessary details. <laughs> they, they further and bolster the truthfulness of the account. Because why would you include it? What does it even matter? Sadly, I fall into this far too often. My stories get long, and I include details that don't really matter. I get on with the point, but it's just its how it happens. So i got to tell you, this is... In there. I'm working on it, right? My wonderful wife, I'm working on it. Details like 153 fish, Peter grabbing his coat and putting it on before jumping into the sea, being 200 cubits or 100 yards from the shore, being in a little boat, uh, a charcoal fire being present, the net not tearing apart from the weight of the fish. These non-essential details are present because it was the way that it happened. So no matter what other spiritual significance might be drawn from the story, and by the way, that number, 153 fish, has been a, like a huge heyday of interpretations over the years, over the centuries. What does 153 mean? 
man, you should look up some of this crazy, some of the things that people put forth, especially when there's numbers involved. That's usually always where you're insured. They get a gazillion different interpretations of what the 153 means. But having said all of that, all of those details are there, I believe, to just further buttress the essential point of the historical fact undergirding our faith that Jesus is alive. And he's alive with power. And these seven men would be among those whom the Lord Jesus Christ would use to spread the gospel to the farthest parts of the world. These seven men, unable to catch any fish through an entire evening on their own, would be empowered and equipped by Jesus to catch a great host of men for their good and God's glory. These few men whom Jesus would feed would be equipped to bring spiritual food to those who are starving for real sustenance. And the fact that it would remind them of their initial calling to follow Jesus would just provide them with renewed assurance that the Lord would be with them and provide a glorious catch. What you are unable to do, God is able to do. J.C. Ralph said, These were the unlearned and ignorant men who boldly confronted the subtle systems of thought of ancient philosophy and silenced its advocates by the preaching of the cross. These were they who went forth from an obscure corner of the earth and turned the world upside down. The bleak night had given way to the dawn of a new day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That his lordship extends beyond the grave as he rose again and conquered death. We know that it is him whom we can trust. It is him whom we depend upon. Lord, I pray if there are any in this place who are still in their sins, have not experienced the forgiveness that comes through relationship with Jesus by repenting of their sins and trusting in him. I pray that you would give them eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Give them hearts to believe in him. Cause them to call upon his name, the name of the Lord, that they might be saved. And Lord, whenever we go through dark nights, whenever we go through bleak times, remind us that joy comes in the morning. Remind us of what you have provided for us in Jesus. Pray all this in his name. Amen.